Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Now that we're past Memorial Day, we're heading into the summer, we're going to go to a more relaxed schedule. We'll still be posting a couple of episodes uh, through the month of June, and then after that, we'll be ending the season and taking a much-deserved summer break. But we have a lot of great stuff still to come. On this week's book segment, we talked to Stacey Philbrick Yada about her new book, Yemen in the Shadow of Transition, Pursuing Justice Amid War. And then we have a conversation among three experts on the international relations of the Middle East about American primacy, multipolarity, and what is or isn't happening with uh, with kind of the region's response to uh, changes in the international system. We hear from Gregory Gauze, Walid Hasboun, and Sarah Bush. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talk to Stacey Philbrick Yada, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, author of the brand new book, Yemen in the Shadow of Transition, Pursuing Justice Amid War, which came out in the UK with Hearst and in the US with Oxford. Uh, Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book, where it came from, and uh, what you were trying to achieve with it. So, you know, you know, I've been writing about Yemen for the the whole of my career, basically. And I had reached a point as the, the war progressed where I was not I was starting to feel like I was losing the thread a little bit and uh, getting increasingly uncomfortable writing about Yemen from here, uh, from here in the U.S., while I knew that things were changing really substantially on the ground. Uh, And I started doing some collaborative research projects with uh, international organizations and Yemeni partners. And and it was through that process that I, I had really a very changing relationship to the war that was going on, but but started to really identify some through lines to forms of conflict and types of justice claims and projects that were recognizable to me as somebody who's been working on Yemen for, for about 20 years. Uh, and so pulling that together uh, was really the goal in the book, was sort of making mm-hmm. sense of now in light of the past sort of 30 years of political history, rather than kind of starting from 2015 and the onset of the the current war. Now, it, it, that's interesting because it, one of the things which uh, surprised me about the book in a good way is that it really does offer a quite, uh, you know, sweeping and compelling, you know, history of Yemen's m- multiple conflicts. But you chose to center uh, justice and uh, these claims on transitional justice or justice claims more broadly. Tell us about that and why that became such an important uh, you know, focal point for, for your reading of Yemen. Sure. I think there are two reasons. There's sort of the decision to justice or to center justice claims is related to the decision to center civil actors. And so I kind of want to take that in two parts. There's a kind of immediate reason to look at justice claims and transitional justice and the literature on transitional justice, which is even before this conflict comes to an end, and as I hope it will, um, there's been substantial planning for the day after. Right. And in fact, planning for post-war reconstruction was underway by 2015. Uh, and there also was already a an engagement with transitional justice during the so-called transitional period from 20, the end of 2011 through the onset of war. So we can suggest, I think, or agree that that transition was not a transition to peace or to prosperity or democracy or anything good. 
Um, but it was, there were a set of transitional institutions. So A, we have this near past sort of experience with transitional justice institutions, and then also ongoing planning for like what, how those might be reinvigorated or reinvented in the aftermath of the current conflict. So I think it's very much in the kind of policy air, albeit mm -hmm. much more um, below the surface than the big peace talks. Uh, but it's it's something that's on people's minds. Um, and so that was part of it, right? But the other part of it is that the points of friction that I can see in that 2012 to 2014, 2015 time period, they have this striking congruence with some of the current claims that actors are making today about justice needs and also stuff that people were talking about in the 2000s under the yeah. a very different set of political conditions. And so I'm really interested in this question of like why these justice demands have been sort of systematically ignored and what some of the consequences of that have been for political stability and, and well-being. I was surprised by how extensive the, uh, the 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 product on transitional justice was from the National Dialogue Committees and, and that 2012 to 2015 period. Yeah, there was a lot going on and some of it pulled in different directions, right? So in the book, I introduced a kind of typology for thinking about disengagement from justice claims versus strategic engagement with justice claims versus substantive engagement. And the transitional period saw some strategic kind of uh, co-opting of justice projects and some really legitimate engagement. And there were some instruments like the immunity provision that were arguably seen as quite unjust by mm -hmm. a lot of people and, and generated a lot of resistance. And those immunity were advanced by Sala, you mean. Yes, exactly. And those were advanced by the same people who were also advancing this more substantive engagement through the national dialogue. So, so there is this tension. It's a, that's a very messy, it's, it's mm -hmm. not by accident that that's the longest chapter in the book, you know, uh, because there so many things came together in those few years. Um, and not, I, when I started writing the book, I felt pretty firm in the conviction that the national dialogue had been a big waste of time at best and probably a substantive driver of conflict and really had contributed to some of the deteriorating conditions in Yemen. And I, I had a set of reasons why I thought that and you know, have written about that with Sheila Carapico and with other people. Um, and I was really surprised on these collaborative projects that I've been engaged with over the past couple of years to find some activists really favorably citing the national dialogue and specifically the transitional justice working group in the national dialogue. So this is a weird thing about the, the national dialogue. It both was an instrument of transitional justice and it was where deeper engagements with justice were supposed to be considered and planned out. There was supposed to be, you know, kind of ongoing mechanisms for addressing social grievances after the conclusion of the national dialogue. Those certainly did not come about because the war displaced that process. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we'll come back to that in, in a few minutes, but I wanted to talk about this kind of longer sweep of Yemeni history that you describe, because one of the things which is which is really useful for me as, uh, as, as I'm approaching the book is the way that you really convincingly show 2015 is not when the war started, nor is 2014 when the war started, at least from the perspective of Yemenis, there's a much longer history of, of, of war and experience of violence. Walk us through that a little bit and the most important antecedents of the war. 
So I can I can keep walking back and back and back and back. And at a certain point in the book, I had to stop doing that. Um, certainly, you know, 2015, you have the onset of an, of the international face of the Saudi-led coalition and its efforts to restore the displaced government by force, right? And that followed the Houthi movement coming in the fall of 2014 and just and sort of renegotiating the terms of power sharing by force. Um, but honestly, the whole transitional period was a period of deteriorating security in many parts of Yemen. And that itself was an extension of some of the violence that was a part of the 2011 uprising. So Yemen's uprising was really unique, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I, everyone makes claims to uniqueness, but one of the defining characteristics of the 2011 uprising in Yemen was the concurrent nonviolent engagement in protest spaces with fighting outside of protest spaces between various militias, tribal groups, the government, et cetera. And so violence was there in 2011 and nonviolence was also very much there and allowing some really cool things to happen in the squares. So that um, concurrent mm -hmm. and sort of mutuality is a, a defining characteristic, I think, of the uprising. So you can trace the threat of violence from 2011, but then we could also go back to 2007 and the beginning of the armed campaign against the Hirak or the Southern movement. Or we could go back to 2004 and the beginning of armed engagement against the Houthis and, and the Houthi insurgency against the state. So sort of we can keep walking back and certainly 1994 or the brief civil war, et cetera. That was actually a lot of the work that was being done by that transitional justice working group in the national dialogue was thinking about which grievances, which violent mm -hmm. conflicts, which part of Yemen's history counted as within the scope of a transitional justice or a restorative process, which is what people were hoping to establish, right? Um, and how far back to, to set the clock. And that debate over when to start counting violations of human rights, when to start counting injustices, was itself a reason for the, that committee to deadlock and delay in its work. Mm -hmm. And they were the first working group to ask for an extension during the national dialogue. It, it's, it's fascinating just how completely forgotten many of these things seem to be. The, you know, the six rounds of war between uh, Saleh and the Houthis, uh, the, the yeah. drone campaign against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, yeah. the, all of these things um, it kind of just kind of seemed to vanish into the analytical ether for many people. But it does tell you sort of where these movements came from. It does. And one of the things that was kind of fun from a methodological standpoint, um, I went back to my old field notes. And as you know, my first book was about parties and political parties in Yemen and in Lebanon and uh, and Islamist parties in particular. And I was really focused in my interviews on those questions, but there was so much that people were talking about that I was actually able to use in this book as well. Um, they were talking about the Houthis and they were talking about Al-Qaeda and talking about the Southern movement. And I was taking notes on it. I just didn't draw it out in that earlier work because it wasn't related to the research question. But here I was able to do that, to return and do some follow-up interviews with some people, although unfortunately, some people are, have also died and have left the country and been killed and mm. uh, are in prison. Um, and then to do, of course, new work, new interviews um, with younger folks who've who've lived a very different political reality. No, that's interesting. And 
actually let's let's push a little bit farther on that because one of the most i think you know compelling things in the book is the way you talk about sectarianism and sectarianization um and you know kind of trying to push back about some of the common narratives and myths about the war so walk us through this a bit why this is not just an iran saudi arabia proxy war yeah, I mean, well, uh, among other things, I think when I look back at how people were talking about the Houthi insurgency as it was starting, which is, you know, I was in Yemen in 2004 and um, and talking with Islamists of a very different type, who members of the Islah party who ended up being major significant rivals to, to the Houthis. Um, the language was not a straightforward sectarian language. It was very much uh, about... Uh, access to political representation and resources and some pretty, um, I don't want to say mundane political rivalries because they did become, you know, significant, more significant. But what they were arguing about was in many ways, cultural rights. And so uh, this, an analogy that sticks with me sometimes is um, when you think about political devolution in, in Great Britain, and you think about the difference between kind of what the Scots we're looking for in terms of economic governance versus what the Welsh are looking for in terms of cultural and language policy. There's an analogy here, the sort of the Houthi regions looking or the areas in which Houthis were growing and popular were making cultural claims mm -hmm. for protection, for um, continuity of, of Zaidi identity, et cetera, and, uh, and wanting political authorities to essentially to protect them against what they saw as evangelism by um, Salafi elements associated with Islah, if not the Islah party itself. Whereas in the South, the grievances of the Southern movement were very material and related to a sort of restoration of a kind of um, self-governance, not necessarily secessionist at, in, in the first instance, but increasingly so, right? And those are really different types of movements. But of course, what they had in common is that they were uh, talking about state institutions, but largely outside of those institutions. Yeah. So I, I do conceive of them as sort of extra partisan, extra institutional in that way. And that's a that's a kind um, of that's a kind of divide that I found really interesting, right? Because you did have things like the JMP, and you had like these insider parties that were always invited to the table, um, right? But then the but then you have the Hirak and the and the Houthis that really are developing in this kind of parallel track, and they're talking about each other. Right. So they're talking about their mutual disappointments with each other, you know, where where movements are not seeing the parties as really delivering on movement aims, which is not surprising. Right. But parties are also seeing movements as affecting their own ability to maneuver and their own ability to negotiate with the regime. And, and that was the reason that I decided to kind of organize the book as if there was a party story and an and a outside of parties story, right? And then that in that very long chapter, the two come together in the space of the uprising, which is when I think actually these these things do come together uh, in a moment of real profound um, upheaval. Mm -hmm. Now, Al-Islah, which you wrote about in your first book, uh, you know, plays a, a key role in these processes as well. Yes, definitely. Um, so, you know, the Islah party itself is a, a complicated organization and not a static organization at all. Uh, but in the 2000s, it was internally kind of divided by a more Salafi wing of the party that also played really closely with the regime mm -hmm. uh, and definitely played uh, very closely with the Saudis. And on the other side, uh, a more centrist kind of 
uh, Muslim Brotherhood influenced group of like party apparatchik types. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was those were really very different um, cohorts, but they were the effects of one, particularly the effects of the kind of Salafi increasing polarization, increasing sectarianization shaped what was possible for the more centrist party folks. And the more centrist party folks also wedded themselves to that alliance, um, you know, to create their own space for maneuver. So, so this is sort of, that's a portrait in the 2000s, but during, during the uprising, you know, I think the youth element beca became really important and younger Islahis were looking for a way to shape the agenda of the party and pretty much got locked out. Uh, at exactly the time when the party as an institution got a lot of additional representational power through the transitional uh, institutions. And I'm worried, looking now, uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the context of the war, the party is not doing a lot of party stuff, right? And I, I wrote about this in that Middle East Law and Governance article. The party is not functioning really very much as a party, uh, but there are Islah-aligned militias and there is Islahi media. And it, it makes a lot more sense to talk about people who are Islahi as a kind of almost ide ideological and sociopolitical orientation, very hostile to the Houthis, right? That's definitely become an entrenched rivalry. It was already a, a real tension. Um, and they are they are likely to get... They have a guaranteed seat at the table in negotiations. They are likely to get a share of any post-conflict power sharing. And whether or not and under what circumstances that, you know, they're willing to share that with the Houthis and why, I think those are really important forward-looking questions. And there are questions that people are likely, people outside of both groups are likely to view through the lens of justice and, mm -hmm. and you know, what is what is fair and what is what it would mean to hold people accountable. It was interesting, you know, seeing how, you know, kind of the, the Salafi wing and kind of their grassroots, um, you know, uh, activism, the way that that actually triggered a lot, some of the Houthi revivalism, but also in the South, Absolutely. you know, this kind of, uh, you talk about how people were getting upset about, you know, this imposition on on gender norms and public behavior and stuff. And that that kind of like ground level stuff was actually quite interesting. And highly yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways as well. And it definitely also took on in, in the South that there was a lot of discussion of retribalization of the South, mm -hmm. which is a way of talking about northern political hegemony, which was also sometimes a way of talking about Islam. And those are overlapping ideas, but they're not identical ideas. And I think it is a it is un, unreasonable for some people some Southern activists to claim that like Islam has no basis in the South. It's clear that was that's not supported by electoral returns. It's not supported by some of the work that's been done on um, younger, like uh, kind of uh, post PDRY, post Marxist uh, cohorts. Mm -hmm. um, there was some legitimate appeal of the Islam party in, in the South. Um, but it is so strongly associated with the North and with Northern hegemony that as the Southern movement has become increasingly secessionist and is now now with the Southern Transitional Council, et cetera, um, the South is not a particularly safe place for Islahis, right? They're, they're, they've been the targets of violence uh, in, in Aden and in other parts of the South uh, for several years. 
No, that's really so that's not sectarian polarization, right? Right. right. It's something right. else. So I think one of the struggles with Yemen is that like people want to kind of fit it into one cleavage box. So this is a uh, about ideology, or this is about regionalism, or that you know, and it's honestly it's about more than one thing at a time, and it it long has been. That, that that reminds me of uh, one of the points you made, you know, deep in the middle of the um, of the justice chapter about some of the youth activists being upset that they had to be represented. I I'm here as a woman, but I'm also right. this, that, and the other, and I'm forced into this box. Yeah, and it's exciting now. Actually, you hear young activists use the language of intersectionality very comfortably to talk about and critique international institutional approaches. I think everyone's agreed, for example, that there should be greater women's representation. But what that means, um, it had you know, if we take a more intersectional approach, then you're also going to have to reckon with the fact that the women who are rep are there are also representing regional identities and have different ideologies, et cetera. Um, and that's not always, you know, I mean, I, I totally see the frustration with international organizations approaches to, to women's representation in particular. And I think the, the, the quotation that you're thinking of in that chapter was definitely from a woman who was definitely fed up with being flattened in that way. Yeah, no, it's interesting to get that. And actually, let's go from there directly to talking about the these uh, activists or the youth in general who, you know, it's a unfortunately a very familiar story in many ways of, you know, being front and center during 2011 and then getting kind of chewed up but uh, by by the fragmentation and the conflict and everything else. But it seems like your engagement with uh, a lot of these uh, of, of these youth and activists, intellectuals and the like shows that they didn't just go away and that that they've actually been engaged on a whole range of issues. And I want you to tell me a little bit about this and kind of what happened to them and how you've been working with them. Because I think this is actually in many ways a real model for how scholars should be approaching a lot of these kinds of uh, situations. This was absolutely the kind of unexpected discovery of the research for this book. Uh, when I started doing research collaborations with Yemeni researchers, the motive for me was to learn more about what ground level realities were, to be able to do some interviews, albeit remotely, um, you know, to be able to kind of update my own knowledge. Right. But what I learned was that the process of knowledge production that people were engaged in was actually central to how they saw themselves advancing justice claims. And this is not, I, I don't want to say this is true of everyone, but it was true of enough people that, you know, it really warranted some discussion at the end of the book, um, that activists are engaged in research because research entails description, and description is a form of narration. And so what I mean by that, and, you know, you know this, I've been really influenced by Wendy Perlman's work on narration and specifically on thinking about what it would be for us as scholars to invite narration, to invite people to narrate their realities uh, as a form of agency. And so when the prevailing discourse on the war in Yemen, especially the policy discourse, you know, for example, understands it as a sectarian conflict or as a proxy war, and Yemeni activists step forward and produce a well-researched report that shows that it's actually something different from that, that work of description has been doing some of the the representational work that people were looking are looking for as a matter of justice, as a as a 
a piece of justice. To be speaking and not spoken for is an essential part of the pursuit of justice for a lot of researchers. And I think, you know, you can look at, I detail a number of organizations towards the end of the book that are actively engaged in knowledge production about Yemen in Anglophone knowledge production or bilingual knowledge production oriented towards a global readership. They want to shape people's understanding of the conflict, but not just the conflict. Also, like, I think there's a strong push to, to help people understand more about Yemen more comprehensively, not just through the lens of conflict. Um, so a number of these organizations that are doing that actually explicitly talk about knowledge production as justice work. So the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies is probably the most widely known organization like this. They actually have a, a newly appointed director for knowledge production. Hmm. And she's someone who I've had the pleasure of working with on some projects. And I, you know, you can see this idea that that creating knowledge about Yemen, um, it helps to address things that people have diagnosed as wrong. And my approach to the concept of justice throughout the book is just the diagnosis of wrongs and an effort to identify remedies for wrongs. Right. I'm not taking a prescriptive approach in terms of what justice means. But I see people doing that kind of diagnostic work through their research. You know, I'm thinking about some of the uh, the productions and the publications from some of these organizations. And it is quite interesting because you, know, you see them putting out something on, for example, the absence of licensed clinical social workers and mental yep. health workers or yep. the effects on maternal health of, of uh, the, uh, not having access to medicines because of the blockade. And those sorts of things, it's easy to imagine them simply disappearing in the policy context right. where people want to focus on war and, and all these other things. But it shows you the things that are actually affecting the life um, of, of, of Yemenis on the ground. It kind of pushes into that narrative in, in I think, important ways. And one of the things, so I mentioned her work in, in the book, um, but one of my co-authors on a collaborative project also writes fiction. <laughs> and she writes fiction in a way that integrates the social science stuff that she does with her researcher hat on. And that kind of movement across modalities, the stories that she's telling are still stories about the impact of the conflict. They're differently told. You know, it's a different form of narration. Um, but it's informed by her identity as a researcher as well, you know. And, and so I think we as Scholars need to broaden our aperture on what counts as relevant, you know, sources of insight um, and take that that kind of multimodal work seriously. Uh, I think that's really important. But I also would say it, you know, if I'm thinking about graduate students or people who are trying mm -hmm. to learn more about Yemen, um, we have to be reading stuff. It seems stupid to say this, but we have to be reading stuff that's written by Yemenis. Uh, and it happens that a lot of that material right now is not coming out in peer-reviewed journals. It's coming out of think tanks, advocacy organizations, and, and international organizations that employ Yemenis to write these reports. And we, we should be reading and citing them. So I've been doing some work with the Research Ethics in the Middle East and North Africa group um, based at Columbia about how we relate to knowledge production outside of the academy or adjacent to the academy and how that can influence our own work. And But I definitely see this cohort of Yemeni researchers writing often in English for us to read. So I, I want yeah, yeah, yeah. to read people. So 
I guess one last question then, kind of, I want to come back full circle uh, to this question of justice, because I, I, you make a very compelling case about the, the centrality of justice claims and, and, and narrative and the like. But you know, if you think about it in concrete terms, it just it almost feels hopeless that any any justice will ever be found for the the victims of these wars, whether at the local level or at the international level. And how do you think about these justice claims within this terrain of uh, I don't know learned hopelessness? Yeah, I mean, it is overwhelming to think about not just the injustices produced during the current war, but then once we start walking that clock back, mm -hmm. it is really just an accumulated history of, of wrong, right? And that's, uh, that is overwhelming. But where I see the greatest uh, achievements is definitely at the hyper-local level, in, at, at a very, very local level. As I say in multiple places in the book, people mm -hmm. are not waiting. They are not waiting for the UN special envoy to deliver the perfect deal to get started on addressing the things that they think are wrong in their communities. And so, um, you know, I still think there's a profound political challenge of how to scale up from that and what that looks like and whether that's consistent with one state or two states or three states or whatever. Uh, I don't mean to make light of how, how difficult that is, but I do see, especially through these collaborative projects that I've been working on, some uh, some kind of amazing stuff happening at the very local level. Give, it, give us an example or two of things that are happening at the local level. People are mediating, like, so there was a lot of attention to the big prisoner exchange uh, agreed um, through negotiation between the warring parties. But at the local level, prisoner exchanges have been happening, um, temporary ceasefires, but also representational stuff. So, you know, uh, collective decision making in in the local community level where women are participating, where um, where members of underrepresented groups that have never and probably will never have like election to the national parliament are able to participate uh, in their local communities. And I think uh, that is the sort of problem solving ethos that people are kind of trying to actualize because there there isn't the luxury of waiting for the next national dialogue or or the international criminal court or any uh, right. of, the, kind of the big yeah. international I mean, courts I, yeah. of justice claims and i should say i do i you know i try to distinguish in that theoretical chapter between kind of legalistic approaches to justice mm -hmm. and accountability and more reparative and restorative approaches. Uh, and I do think there's room for both. I think a lot of attention is paid to the legal mechanisms. That's a kind of preferred path for, for a lot of international organizations and also um, some Yemeni organizations as well. I don't think that that's gonna be particularly productive for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think when I, when I see these local level successes, they tend to be much more on the reparative and restorative side. Uh, of how how do we live together um, than the assignment of blame. Well, great. We've been speaking to Stacey Philbrook Yada about her new book, Yemen in the Shadow of Transition, Pursuing Justice Amid War. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And this year at the POMAP's annual conference, we were able to bring together a number of scholars who are on our leadership to talk about issues related to their research and interesting things going on in the region. And today we're going to talk to uh, three of my colleagues about what we like to call the end of the American era in the Middle East 
question mark. Um, and we have three experts on international relations. Um, Gregory Gauze of Texas A&M's Bush School, um, uh, uh, Sarah Bush of Yale University, and Walid Hasboun of the University of Alabama. And I'm basically going to pose the same question to each of the three of you. You know, do you think it's true that American primacy is coming to an end? And if so, what does that mean for regional dynamics? Uh, Professor Gauze. So yeah, it's certainly coming to an end. And I think we can say this for two reasons. Reason one is, if your baseline is uh, 150,000 American troops occupying an Arab country, uh, the United States commitment to the Middle East is much reduced. Uh, the second reason we can say it's coming to an end is that almost everyone in the region believes it's coming to an end and are altering their foreign policies to try to adapt to what they think will be the next iteration of the global configuration of power. Uh, whether it's uh, dealing with China or, or uh, re-engaging with Russia, or even uh, you know, trying to find that sweet spot uh, between the great powers, we're certainly seeing regional uh, players uh, recalibrate their foreign policies. Now, I, I think that what we have to avoid is swinging all the way in the other direction. There's a, a persistent belief among many in the in the region that the United States is quote unquote leaving the Middle East. I think that's a that's a real exaggeration. But if we're talking about like the period of American unipolarity, the period of American primacy in the Middle East, I do think that that's over. Uh, Sarah Bush. Um, great. So um, I I think that the the period of primacy uh there's i remember reading this in a poem of studies actually just to shout out for the listeners um those that came out around when trump was elected and i think a point that was made there is that um there's a strong perception of the the end of primacy and that the regardless of what's happening um you know on the ground the perception becomes reality and so i think that 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 what my colleague here has just been talking about, you know, it makes that point really powerfully. I think as somebody who has done research on how the U.S. has tried tried and um, largely failed to spread uh, values of democracy um, and human rights around the world with an interest in the, the Middle East, I think one point that I would make is um, kind of an interest in how um, U.S. foreign policy pulling back from certain forms of engagement, um, you know, that didn't work in spreading those values, but may affect um, still strategies so of, of the governments there. So I'm interested in how uh, rhetoric related to liberal values um, influences the, the uh, policies that countries take with respect to women's rights and, you know, the, the adoption of reforms in the space uh, of women's political rights, women's social and economic rights in some cases. And so I think like one interesting question that I'll be watching going forward is how how does the changing role of the U.S. in the region affect some of these policy areas? Interesting. We'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, Waleed, uh, how about yeah, you? I mean, you know, Jake Sullivan, we gave a speech outlining and it was it the five points they talk about in values is the, the last point. And, 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 and so it's kind of still on that list. But I think if you 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 look at what the, what this moment means, it's it's a in some ways it's a real sort of geopolitical challenge. 
the the U.S. is trying to fight that perception that it's withdrawing and that it wants to, you know, maintain leverage. But the I think the in some ways the problem is, you know, in the in the, the height of that American era, there was a, um, a, a very powerful military projection that had some, you know strong goals. But there was also the sense that it was part of a, a broader strategy of political change, if it's democratization or not. But this idea that the U.S. had a map in the 1990s of how the region might be transformed, might be integrated. Um, but in, in many ways, you can see that project and that vision, his, his kind of uh, eclipsed, uh, collapsed. And what the U.S. has remaining is really sort of its, its military presence, which is maybe, uh, you know, down to 40,000, uh, you know, uh, active personnel. But it's still, you know, very committed and in, in recommitting its security commitments in, in many ways, trying to, uh, uh, you know, erase the 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 impact that o Obama and um, and Trump has had in terms of the U.S. not being there in terms of the security commitments. And if you at least, you know, you look at the policies and you look at the speeches, they're very much they keep repeating, "We're not going anywhere. We're here." Um, uh, uh, I think Secretary Austin. Uh, his, you know, kind of hinted that like what happened in 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 like Saudi Arabia and the UAE in, in terms of, like the U.S., that would not happen again. If, if one of these countries was attacked, they seem to be suggesting that the U.S. would not just, you know, uh, hold its hands. I mean, who knows what would really happen and if there would be fears of escalation. There's some tensions in the in the, in the Gulf at the moment um, with Iran, but they do have the strategy of trying to integrate the regional military forces. And, you know, in the national security strategy, it talks about somehow being able to reduce the U.S. resources devoted to the region by having the regional states develop their own sort of military capacities. But I don't really I don't really think the U.S. is going to pull out of that. I think the integration really the U.S. is going to have to be central, uh, or at least in terms of uh, um, uh, projecting power. And I kind of think this is where the U.S. leverage now uh, uh, is limited to the military power, the the the, the extensive arms sales in the region. Why China is playing a different game, and and China is integrating economically. If you look at the you know economic statistics, um, uh, you know China matters to the region not just in terms of energy but trade, and 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 this is what a lot of the states they kind of like the Chinese model of the authoritarian you know, authoritarian political authority, uh, economic ties, while the U.S. has very limited economic ties outside of arms sales, um, but is trying to maintain leverage with this uh, military presence, at the same time, seems very challenged by the, the Chinese influence role. Barbara Leaf talked about even opinion polls that China is like perceived much more positively than the United States in, in, in much of the region. And this is their challenge. So they want to prevent, and explicitly they see the, the Belt and Road Initiative as, as a wedge that's trying to, you know, uh, drive the U.S. out. And so the U.S. is trying to maintain influence. It has the, 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 the military card, um, but much, but not so much else. And so this is the real, and I think the, I'd be curious, this idea of selling the values is definitely a non-starter for, for many countries. And they find, you know, working with China is much more easier on that front. So they're kind of, they get the, the, the security umbrella on the one hand, they get the economic ties and the, the, the whatever the uh, blank check or whatever in terms of the you know the the values democracy uh, question and I think this is the game that's playing and from the U.S. position it's very challenging to try to maintain influence with very limited tools and not well adapted to I think the changing global political mm -hmm. economy. I think there's one issue that uh, will bring the the military and security element of American policy in the region back to the forefront and that's the Iranian nuclear issue. The Biden administration 
like every administration before it has said, it's intolerable for Iran to have a nuclear weapons capability. And, and you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to a point where it will be hard to deny that Iran has a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, and uh, Secretary Leaf at, at one point in a public forum, uh, responding to a question that I asked her, <laughs> uh, said uh, that, uh, I, I, what about a, kind of a gray zone of Iranian nuclear capability? And she said, that's intolerable too. I'm paraphrasing, but but the, it was clear. And and I, I as much as the administration would like to kick that issue out beyond the uh, election in, in November of 24, uh, they might not be able to. So I think that that'll <clears throat> revive the military security element in the American discussion about the Middle East. There's one thing that that I might take exception to what Walid said. I, I think that the security and military element isn't the only tool the US has in its, its toolkit. It's not doing the kind of investing that China is, but uh, Gulf money still goes to the United States and, 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 and the Gulf states and their economic uh, plans, whether it's Saudi Vision 2030 or the other, long-term plans in the smaller Gulf states. They want American companies, they want American investment. And so while the Chinese are forefronting trade and investment in, in their approach to the region, when you look at the at where the capital, you know, from the oil-rich parts of the Middle East goes, it's still enormously toward the United States and to Europe. And that's what gives American sanctions their their heft. Sarah, what do you think about uh, what uh, Walid said about the uh, the greater, perhaps, uh, the, the Arab leaderships are perfectly happy to have the Chinese-style authoritarianism and uh, perfectly happy to not have to listen to American lectures about democracy and human rights and women's rights and that sort of stuff. I mean, with, with your research and when you look at this stuff, what do you think about that kind of argument? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to it. Um, my sense from reading colleagues who work on China's role in Africa and in other parts of the world suggests that, you know, in contexts where uh, Chinese uh, economic initiatives have been uh, you know, been making investments for for some number of years now. We're starting to see um, some complications to that narrative. Where I think that not everyone who is um, interfacing with you know Chinese investment in trade is happy. You know, even if it even if these initiatives are you know portrayed as being value neutral, they don't always end up being that way in practice. They may end up empowering certain. Um, uh, political groupings, societal groupings, and harming others, and so I think that 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 it could be more complicated. Uh, but time will tell. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of this this joke on Twitter that uh, I don't remember who said it, so I'm going to steal it for myself, um, which is basically a conversation that goes along the lines of. Every time we talk to the Chinese, we we come away with an airport. Every every time we talk to you, we get a lecture, and the American says, "But the, but the Chinese are trapping you in debt." And the Gulf official says, ah, here comes the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Waleed, um, a lot of your work in the past, you know, kind of points to the idea that all this talk about the, the ill effects of declining U.S. primacy might be missing the point because U.S. primacy wasn't such a great thing for the region. It's not like the Middle East has been a peaceful, democratic or any other kind of like thriving region under U.S. primacy. Talk a little bit about, you know, what we should be thinking about when we think about the passing of U.S. order, you know, in this broader historical sense. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the well, one thing is, you know, I I, I like to think about this idea of like the U.S. you know leverage really began to decline when the the post Cold War vision of the 1990s, the peace process, the the dual containment, and thinking about regime change that would happen under the weight of of, of sanctions and this political pressure and changing international kind of uh, no, uh, system, um, uh, you know, really kind of collapses around 2000, the, the failure of the peace process, the idea that, uh, you know, the Iraqi regime wasn't going to collapse, the Iranian regime was, you know, reconstructing itself. Um, and, um, and so the, the, you know, the, the Iraq war in some ways I see is like the, the, you know, trying to change through military force, which now we realize the kind of limits of that. Um, and, and some of it was, you know, Poor planning, and some of it was a, a grand vision that power could sort of transform political systems. Um, but I, I, you know, I, now I think it is very tricky to think about what is the American vision. It's it's kind of this back to basics approach that uh, McGurk talks about is is going back to sort of like rebuilding this alliance, the ties with these key states, but 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 without I think the the vision that's that what their political transformation is, and it's a curious question about what are the, the Gulf states now are rising kind of, you know, middle ranked global powers and they see themselves as actors being able to shape the system themselves, no longer fitting into an American order, but beginning to sort of create their order. And we have this, the interim of the, of the, I think the, the Arab uprisings, the Arab wars you, you talked about and the proxy wars is maybe the first phase of them. And I think we I'll see that as a total disaster that led to, you know, civil wars and, you know, but I think now we have this sort of adjustment that now it seems like there's this next phase where, where you know, the Emiratis, I think, are much more clever in thinking about how to how to position their leverage, what role they're going to play in the the the, the global economic system. Um, and, and so it's, you know, does the U.S. still have this map? I think the U.S. has uh, influential ties, technology. I mean, there's a lot to offer. And I think they're they're not they're not. Um, they're not going to forego these ties with the U.S., but I think they want to do it uh, sort of on their own terms, and that's the 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 the, the tricky thing for um, uh, for the U.S. And the, what does the U.S. want from this region? And and I think they've talked themselves into Iran being much more of a of a of a, of a threat to be dealt with with a with a very low threshold. Uh, um, um, and I think Obama tried to change that in his effort to to you know the, with the, the nuclear deal. And to try to just say it's not a you know it's not going to be a regional power um, um, is is now the U.S. you know it's talked itself out of that kind of more normal uh, e equilibrium to form in the system, um, so it's kind of it seems kind of stuck there, playing that sort of uh, deterrence role, even though if you look on you know if you look in Iraq I think there's this effort to try to avoid escalation, um, and so I think that's a, a, a you know. Uh, you know, a tricky uh, balancing. But then, you know, I, the other thing about when we talk about the end of the era, it's also in the, the perception, because I think that whole, you know, how many times do people go back to what the U.S. did? And now, it ha you know, when it comes with new ideas or, or new perspectives, it has to sort of, uh, you know, um, oh, you know, uh, live with its its legacies, uh, you know, in the region, which, you know, in, in many places, Iraq, and if you think about Palestine, the, the impact of this era, um, you know, it, it's it's not just the American fault, but it was so involved across the region so intensely. If we think about Egypt, uh, also, you know, the the um, uh, in in what that's become, it's kind of like the U.S. has this legacy, and other states are kind of taking advantage and finding their their position in it. 
And it's it's unclear for the time being that the U.S. has like a, a, a end game in the way that it used to have an end, end game in its in its vision. Greg, you know, we're looking at a region now. We've got the the Iran Saudi normalization under Chinese auspices. You've got the Abraham Accords trying to and the attempt to uh, create normalization in Israel and the Arab states. What do you think about all this in terms of is this a new regional order that's emerging or is this just like everyone's taking a break? Well, I don't think that there's an order emerging. I mean, I think Waleed's point about uh, how there was an American sense in, in the unipolar period of an order that failed, right? It failed on the Arab-Israeli front. It failed on, on the, the dual containment front. And then it failed on the invasion of Iraq front, and the, the, the forcible regime change front. Uh, and now I think that there's less a sense of an order and more a sense of a scramble. Uh, the the competition that was funneled into these weak and collapsing states in the post 2011 period, even before Iraq was, you know, we had cracked Iraq open like an egg, and who took advantage of it? Mostly Iran, but also some other players. Uh, but after 2011, there are all of these political vacuums that the regional powers and some international powers. Uh, played out their balance of power games in. And we, we're, we're seeing maybe uh, you know, a, a drawing back from those direct confrontations. But I, I, I doubt very strongly that we're going to have anything that resembling an order in the near term. I think that Waleed's absolutely right. What we're going to see is, is a return to that uh, dream of the 1950s, that middle powers could actually play a non-aligned role in between the great powers or among the great powers. Uh, we know from that experiment that uh, in the end, almost everybody had to choose. I don't know if everybody's going to have to choose this time because there's not that sharp ideological element to it. I mean, the Biden administration puts forward this notion that the world is kind of realigning on a democracies versus authoritarians axis, but I don't think anybody outside of Europe and, and maybe the democratic rim of East Asia buys that. Right. There certainly. certainly wouldn't be much of a place for the Middle East in that. Well, I think that there would be a particular place in the Middle East for that. Uh, and and because of these kind of back to basics things that Willie talks about the administration uh, putting forward, uh, we're not going to, you know, there's a reason why values was number five in in, mm -hmm. in, in Jake Sullivan's speech. There's this, there's this weird category. If you look at the national security strategy and other talk about there's the there's the democracies and then there's the countries that are supportive of the the the, the rules-based international yeah, order. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the the some of the Gulf countries have sort of fit within that category. But then if you start looking at them, they kind of have a different sense of rules and they don't they don't buy into that system. And there's many other countries, and we've seen this with the the approach to the Ukraine war. Europe is solidly aligning with US and NATO, but you know, and this is what is going on in the region, you know. Uh, uh, um, Zelensky is touring, I guess, you know, the Middle East and other places to try to try to uh, get states to get at least more support and, and aid. But but they're thinking they're thinking not in the, you know, not strictly aligning along with NATO. Uh, um, uh, you know, Turkey, some of these countries are playing different sides and, and you know, or, or, or attempting to sort of think in a different way, uh, you know, about the implications. Um, so it is a kind of uh, um, it's a it's a sort of funny game that it looks like in terms of what's the nature of the order and what's Biden's. I mean, I think he talks in terms of this alignment, but there's something else going on. And I think it's about this, you know, great power uh, competition, which is something we could kind of talk about at this moment when the U.S., you know, if you go back to 
you know, the Obama administration talking about pivoting to Asia. And then now there's no longer this idea that somehow you're going to pivot and deal with Asia. You're going to deal with Asia in the Middle East, or at least this is this, this approach, this competition. But it's again, it's playing in it's different than the Cold War, but it's it's playing kind of two different games in the sense the Chinese don't want to have a strong military presence. There's some arms sales. There's some there's some role that they play, but it's quite minor. Um, and and uh, Jonathan Fulton talks about this that in many ways they have very common interests. China wants stability in the region because it wants to maintain its economic ties. Um, so in many ways they should have common interests. But you 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 go to this idea of of a new kind of global geopolitics. Um, then it becomes kind of competition. It's all about you know relative power and the mm -hmm. and the scale of the international system, and less about like uh, what particular states want or don't want in the region. Can I say also? I think that some of these dynamics where the U.S.'s major non-NATO allies like Morocco and Jordan are you know having to walk a very careful tightrope in terms of Ukraine of mm -hmm. you know doing enough to support the you know the U.S. and NATO actions, but not too much to, to, you know, to maintain that non-aligned, you know, tricky middle path. I mean, I don't think that's just the major non-NATO allies in the Middle East either. It's also, you know, um, countries in Asia, you know, it's like Thailand, you know, you know, other countries also that are, that are U.S. allies, but that are finding this to be a very um, kind of uncomfortable road to tread in, in terms of like, you know, you know, what to do on sanctions, what to do militarily, et cetera. Even Israel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to, you know, this idea of, you know, the Biden administration talking about the world dividing between democracies and autocracies and all of this, uh, which, you know, and again, in the Middle East context, it, you know, seems to have a very large hole in it. Sarah, I mean, you've done a lot of research over the years on U.S. democracy promotion efforts or the and, and the effects of them. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be a comeback of democracy promotion despite this talk coming out of the administration. I mean, is democracy promotion over? Or is this something which might actually still be a live US enterprise? Yes. Um, so, you know, something that's always kind of interested me about this foreign policy space is that there's the headline initiatives um, uh, and uh, you know, the rhetoric and the things that we all hear about in the news, you know, many of those things go, go badly. And those kinds of rhetorical and, you know, headline foreign policy shifts do alter a lot from administration to administration, certainly a big shift there in terms of the way Trump versus Biden has been talking about democracy globally. But then there's this other part of U.S. foreign policy that's, um, you know, been called by Thomas Brothers the day in and day out aspects of democracy promotion. You know, the the organizations that are monitoring elections, um, the you know initiatives within an aid agency that are um, dedicated to getting uh, more women to run for political office, or that are providing trainings to the election management bodies. Um, you know, providing small grants to civil society organizations. And those kinds of programs are very, very rarely in the headlines, um, but they kind of just go on in the background um, and they don't shift that much from administration to administration. And I don't really think they're going away, um, uh, even if democracy is not something that in a presidential administration and the U.S. prioritizes anymore. You know, there's a whole bureaucracy and set of initiatives that that are dedicated to this that I don't see being 
cut anytime soon. Um, you know, I think that that research in this space suggests that those initiatives work a lot better when they're accompanied by priority and diplomacy, you know, at the higher level where the, the headline grabbing stuff is matched by the day in and day out stuff. Um, but I, I don't think that they're, they're going away. And I think that they, they can matter. That doesn't mean that they are effective, um, but they may uh, shape some of the strategies of authoritarian rule. Um, they may, you know, if the all of the pieces align in the proper moment, they may help expose a fraudulent election and encourage some popular mobilization. So I think that they're they're not in the headlines, but they do, they are still significant um, without wanting to overstate how much they matter either. Now, Greg, you've written um, a provocative piece last year where you basically said, forget about democracy, what we need are stable states and you, you can't have regional order without stable states. And um, what do you think about all of this then? I mean, are, are, do you still think that's the case? Oh, yeah, definitely. You let the autocrats do their thing? Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think that the United States has either the will or the ability to substantially affect the domestic political development of any of these places. But it sounds like you don't think they should. Right. Because why do something that you're only going to mess up? Why do something that you're going to fail at anyway? Uh, I think you got to live with the world as it is. I'm very happy to encourage uh, democracy in places where democracy seems to be taking hold. And, you know, I wasn't against uh, uh, trying to to encourage the, the democratic transition in Tunisia, but that also failed. Uh, but I think that it's it's just a waste of time and effort and, and frankly, counterproductive to think about uh prioritizing democracy democracy promotion in places where it is not going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that, that the United States should work against democratic change. And I thought one of the good things of the Obama administration was its pretty casual acceptance of the fact that a Muslim Brotherhood president had been elected in Egypt in, 20, in 2012 and, and that a, a Muslim Brotherhood-led Islamist majority parliament was elected in Egypt. Sure, accept that. But uh, it doesn't seem to me like the more active interventionist policies, whether it be the more bureaucratic and pacific ones or the, the, the military intervention in Iraq or the sanctions-led policy of, of, of maximum pressure on Iran that was supposedly going to lead to a democratic change there. Uh, none of that happens. And, and what are the collateral costs of that. I mean, look at the collateral costs of sanctions. Look at the, the enormous costs to Iraqis and to the United States of the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. So yeah, I, I've got no time for that. Do, do you really do you really think that uh, that the CC regime is making Egypt a more stable place or a better uh, contributor to regional order for or so in Tunisia or right? I'm not making any uh, moral judgments on this. Well, I'm asking about sure. the practical effects. Are they becoming well, the are they becoming more stable? Yeah, sure. I mean, they're 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 certainly more stable in the sense that that uh, you know who's governing and you know who to talk to to get something done. Uh, Look, I regret the the path that Egypt has taken. It's a, it's a shame for somebody who's lived there and and wishes only the best for for Egyptians. But the idea that somehow American policy is going to turn that around just seems to me to be a pipe dream. 
And I think we should we should recognize the fact that if you're going to have any kind of decent governance in the Middle East, and I, I think that the, the goal should first and foremost be decent governance more than democracy. And to have decent governance, you have to have governance. And unfortunately, in so many places, uh, what we have is is failed and failing states. Now, that's not Egypt. Uh, and, and one can argue that Sisi is is taking Egypt on a path away from decent governance. But I'm not sure there's much American policy can do to change that. Let me give the, the last question then uh, to Walid. Um, and I want to go back to this argument you've, art- you've articulated uh, here and also in, in your writings about kind of the counterproductive effects of many U.S. policies and, uh, you know, the, the, the ways in which um, you know, U.S. attempts to impose order often end up generating precisely the, the negative results that they were meant to avoid. Um, do you think, you know, looking at where we are now in the region, that this less ambitious U.S. approach might actually, ironically, have a stop making so many <laughs> counterproductive, unforced errors? Well, if you if you again if you take the baseline, the you know U.S. invasion of Iraq, then it's kind of obvious well, that yeah. not you know not not doing that. But I think that's definitely uh, um, you know not not in the cards. These new strategies. My concern, and if I think about you know Greg's comments about okay, um, what what can the U.S. do? Uh, it can't intervene into the domestic politics of these states, but what it can attempt to do is try to bring regional stability in the sense of, of conflict resolution, uh, de-escalation. Um, so I think the the my my fear is that what's 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 the what's left in terms of the U.S. posture is the full militarization of politics in the region. If we look at Egypt, I mean it's not a it's not a failed state in a certain definition, but it's also a state that I don't know if it's really satisfying the the needs of its you know of its society over the long run. If we talk about economic conditions, we talk about the human security aspect um, um, across the region, which is another you know, disaster waiting to happen in, in the future. And if you think about add climate change to that, add, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, um, so I think we might have a longer, slower erosion, you know, new phase of, of, of state erosion that's being sort of held together in a much more disciplined way with, with militaries being the role. So I think that's in some ways the legacy of the U.S. role and the fact that the U.S. has less leverage on the values, let's say, values, institutional democracy front, um, and much more on the, the 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 military front means that it's going to be harder for these states to uh, to to evolve and develop you know uh, um, a governance that's going to satisfy their people because they're just trying to hold everything together um, and and with the military centered kind of regimes they don't have this kind of vision for um, you know for a future that's much more you know kind of inclusive um, so I think that in some ways that's the the, the the, the American legacy is still sort of uh, uh, having effect in the the fact that the U.S. is no longer, you know, directly having that military role, but it's still the militarization of these societies, the amount of money that's spent on, on you know, arms sales and and, 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 and regional conflict is, is still there. So I think that's the American legacy, sad thing. We've been speaking to Gregory Gauz, Sarah Bush, and Walid Hasboun. Mm-hmm.